This is 105.9 The Region, and you're listening to Discovery, the radio show for podcasters. Your content, unfiltered. This is Discovery. Hello, I'm Cal Steiger, your host for Discovery, a show for people who love podcasts. This week, we continue with our series from King's College in London, England, going the next step on the big topic, inequality, an issue some would call the issue of our time. In this week's episode, the dialogue transitions from establishing shared understandings of inequality to evaluating the ascent of finance in contemporary life, specifically the role that assets and debts play in shaping the contours of who is at risk of experiencing inequality. Experts answer what is new about contemporary inequality and what has changed in the configuration of the economy itself to worsen inequality. To answer these questions, the discussion shifts from the domestic national economies to global finance and interrogates the ways in which global financial markets connect to everyday life. Authors of the book The Asset Economy share how income levels are just one among many significant factors like family wealth or inherited wealth plus age, race, gender, and where you live that contribute to inequality. This second dialogue asks what is new about contemporary inequality, or rather, what has changed in the configuration of the economy itself to worsen inequality in the ways that we discussed in the first dialogue. To answer these questions shifts the discussion from the domestic national economy to global finance and interrogates the ways in which global financial markets connect to everyday life. The 2020 book, The Asset Economy, authored by Lisa Adkins, Melinda Cooper, and Martin Konings, published by Polity Press, pushes at the weakness in economistic understandings of inequality by detailing what they see as a foundational shift in center of gravity capitalism, away from the commodity to the asset. The key element shaping inequality is not simply about the type of job or income level a person has but rather whether one is able to buy assets that appreciate at a faster rate than both inflation, which means how much all prices go up, and wages, which means income from employment. Having a good job with a good income remains an important factor because this shapes the ability to purchase assets like stocks and bonds, and income is also important to secure a mortgage to buy a home. That income levels are just one among other significant factors like having family wealth or inheriting wealth in determining which individuals have access to the asset economy. It's not just these factors. It's also age, race, gender, and where you live. These are the key elements that configure intergroup inequality, which means a basic framework for understanding whom in society has the ability to buy assets that appreciate faster than wages and inflation, and who does not. We are delighted to be joined by Professor Lisa Atkins and Martin Connings from the University of Sydney to kick off our dialogue by discussing their latest book. One of the key interventions, I think, in terms of thinking about inequality is a kind of conceptual move from thinking about inequality operating through the logic of a commodity to a logic of of assets. We're very careful, I think, not to fall into that trap that's so often present in a lot of work on contemporary inequalities, which kind of says, look, here's the dividing line. Um, This lot are gaining and this lot are losing. And of course, it's true, this lot are gaining and this lot are losing. But there's what unites people is a kind of logic, right? A speculative logic or a social logic. What we have tried to think about is 
debt in relation to assets. So most debt that people hold in households tends to be mortgage debt. And that's mortgage debt against an asset. So we've tried to actually produce a much more, if you like, relational account of debt that understands debt as actually being positioned on a balance sheet in a, in a Minskyan sense. So when we start to think about debt and risk in those ways, we come up with a different kind of understanding of who might be most at risk. Part of what we're arguing in the book is that lives are being lived in a speculative way and that this is not some sort of unproductive thing that we can think of as a, an exception or a remainder or something that, you know, is not, that we don't have to fit into our social models. So then the question really becomes whether you can speculate in a productive way, whether you can participate in asset inflation. I think I'm very much using Michelle Fayer's words here. Is the, the capital that you own, the human capital or the housing capital, or is that appreciating over time or is it depreciating over time? Insofar as so much of the asset economy has come to revolve around housing, right now I think that is the main axis of inclusion and exclusion. what we term asset-based lifetimes are emerging and have replaced to a certain extent the kind of classic lifetimes of Fordism and the kinds of transitions that one would make in one's lifetime. So that, for instance, with the asset economy, you know, you might remortgage your home when you're actually not working anymore which wouldn't have been possible in the Fordist period. You might work way beyond retirement age. Your adult children might move back into your home multiple times. So there's this very interesting non-linear biography that's very prevalent in the asset economy and which kind of relates strongly to the centrality of the politics of time. This very point is picked up in the Politics of Inequality Working Group here at King's. Dr. Steve Klein, can I bring you in to elaborate? Part of it's also policy-driven. And so maybe to what extent is this being driven by kind of the larger structure of these financial flows and capitalist forces? And to what extent was this also kind of deliberately engineered by governments as an alternative to the welfare state to get people into housing? I mean, that was the rhetoric in the U.S. and the U.K. so strongly. The solution of the pandemic has been, well, let's just gun the housing market in the U.K. So I think thinking about sort of having a conversation about where we, to some extent, separate out the larger structural dimensions of it, but then also the policy dimensions of it could be helpful. Certainly interesting perspectives, but as we still have more questions than answers, at least for now, we ask ourselves, what role does debt play in the asset economy? Let's look at both sides of the balance sheet as our participants discuss the role of debt in generating fortune and misfortune in the asset economy. Let's come straight back with Professor Lisa Atkins from the University of Sydney. What did you want to add? We saw that in the COVID crisis, actually, that there was a risk of households going under, brought about by the COVID crisis in the context of major job losses and 
furloughing schemes and so on. And we saw the response to that was big mortgage companies and banks stepping in and giving mortgage householders mortgage holidays. So they allowed households to buy time, as it were. So the ones who are most at risk, I would say, are those who aren't in a position to buy time or to keep themselves afloat, as it were. So yeah, I think we've got understanding that assets are driving inequality actually leads you to paying attention to risk in the way that you framed it in a different kind of way, I think, especially around the politics of liquidity. The residential mortgage payments are basically the anchor of the financial system, right? Which is extraordinary. I mean, it's an extraordinary reconfiguration of the politics of the home and what it is and what it means. And in the book, we kind of trace that transformation of the home from a kind of consumption item into an asset. And we look at the kind of institutional drivers for that transformation and how that's taken place in kind of Anglo-capitalist economies in particular. But I think you're absolutely right that there's this really interesting politics of the home that's now emerged. Essentially, your home is not just linked directly into finance markets, but also it's all about your future. It's all about what life you can live and everyone else who lives with you, what lives they can live. So it's this most extraordinary reconfiguration of society. I think we talk in the book about buying time, that, you know, an asset typically involves us borrowing money, typically taking on a large mortgage, and we might struggle to buy the time to repay in the hope of capital gains in the future. And I think that that temporal politics has now become at the heart of the household. We talk about the household transforming or its key dynamic transforming along what we term Minskyan lines. So the household resembles more of a balance sheet. Debt further complicates how we understand inequality in an asset economy. Debt is not simply a liability on the other side of the household's balance sheet. Debt is complicated. For most people, debt is a claim on present-day income. But for others, debt is a source of leverage to increase wealth gains. Most people think of debt in terms of a mortgage to buy a house, a car to get around, a line of credit for a small business, a student loan to get an education, a credit card, a small loan for a laptop, a phone, or appliance. To these people, the asset is the thing that debt purchases. Connecting this to the wider dialogue of the asset economy means recognizing that debt is actually one of the most lucrative financial assets to own. Actually, having lots of debt to use as leverage can contribute to windfall wealth gains as well as losses. Debt is complicated. Let's bring in Dr. Joe Spooner from the London School of Economics, Faculty of Law, and affiliated with the International Inequalities Institute as his research examines how legal and regulatory frameworks of markets link debt to inequality. My research is on the area of household debt, so I'm really um, focused on a number of aspects of that problem, but primarily on credit markets, okay? So when households are accessing credit, under what conditions are they doing so? And that's strongly 
heavily influenced by the legal and regulatory ground rules of the marketplace. So I guess that's a particular fascination for me is how our ground rules, the building blocks of our markets can actually shape, influence, exacerbate inequality. So I look at areas which perhaps might seem a little prosaic and maybe are taken for granted at times, things like contract law, um, financial regulation, bankruptcy law, but all of these are the building blocks of our markets and these allow inequality to develop in the marketplace. So I'm really fascinated by the idea that the poor pay more Why is it that when a low-income household is entering the marketplace seeking access to credit, they have to pay a much higher price than a wealthy household? And in this way, the markets are you know, allowing the rich to get richer, wealthy households who can actually access finance and use leverage in order to you know, make their wealth grow into greater wealth, whereas for the low-income household who's seeking to may have already net negative wealth and they're just seeking to access credit in order to get by, they have to pay a higher interest rate, they have to pay a higher cost. I think it's sometimes an overlooked aspect of the issue of inequality is how our laws can actually shape um, an unfair playing field in the market, which can lead to a lot of these kind of problems. So I think there's a lot of focus on taxation, redistribution, the welfare system. But, you know, I've seen some commentators like... um, David Harvey, for example, make the point that workers can unite and they can bargain in the workplace and work hard to negotiate wage increases with their firms that are employing them. But what's the good of all of that if they then go to the marketplace and their bank rips them off or some other firm is charging them very high rates for accessing credit? So I think that's really a big problem which I'm interested in addressing. We're thinking about, well, you know, what trends have led to people getting into such debt and what have led, led to, you know, because once people, once households start becoming indebted, then, you know, the real um, pace of inequality can quicken quite severely. So how did this happen? Well, there are a couple of ideas in terms of explaining what's been happening in recent decades. One is the idea of loans for wages, that we've just seen a kind of a stagnation of wages in real terms in many developed economies since, I guess, the early 80s, depending on which country you look at. And while the cost of living haven't stopped growing, wages haven't kept pace. And then increasingly, there's been resort to credit to kind of fill those gaps. Another idea is with the shrinking welfare state, there's kind of been a substitution of debt for welfare. So certain public services, which used to be provided free of charge, now have to be funded by households borrowing, you know, education being a really kind of glaring example, but we see some other examples as well. And also the idea, if we just have a less generous support system when people run into unemployment, ill health, etc. People might be actually using debt to get through these life accidents, these kind of social force majeure events. And that is very much something that could be related to overall like big picture trends in terms of smaller government, that sort of activity. Then at, I guess, a more granular level, you can look at individual policies in terms of bankruptcy laws, in terms of financial regulation, and you can see maybe decisions that have been made help to lead to kind of more inequality in terms of household debt until quite recently that credit could solve a lot of these problems and that you could have actually households being sufficiently well resourced without state support through credit markets under the kind of 
Washington consensus prior to the global financial crisis, maybe for a few years after there was this idea that the issue policymakers had to address was the democratization of credit. So the idea that everyone could have access to credit and that the problem was lack of access for certain groups in society and that had to be remedied. Now, um, I think there's been a greater recognition in, in recent years, at least at the international, in the international policy sphere, maybe domestic politicians are not quite getting on board, but the idea is that too much debt can actually produce more problems than good and can actually hold back the economy while also producing hardship for individual households who are finding themselves trapped in debt. Wealthy households have the highest amounts of debt but also pay much lower rates of interest. For wealthy households, debt is a way of leveraging gains from the asset economy. This is the polar opposite experience of the poorest households who are largely excluded for everyday financial products and will have very small amounts of debt to pay, but the highest rates of interest. So debt is not a fixed thing. There is no good amount of credit and bad amount of debt. Instead, debt is a fault line of inequality. When we think about the relationship between debt and inequality, there is the seen and unseen dimensions. What we can observe is that increasing levels of private or household debt coincide with intensifying levels of inequality. We can also observe the unequal terms of credit, in which large corporations borrow at very low or zero bound interest rates, while households borrow at much higher rates of interest to fund the basics of life, housing, education, transport, consumption, However, what is unseen is the cost of caring for this debt, or the unpaid labor dedicated to servicing debt week by week, month by month, year by year. Especially during periods of economic uncertainty and downturn, a generalized economic anxiety is fostered within societies carrying high levels of private debt. There is the squeezed middle of households who dream only of being mortgage and debt-free, finally able to reap the full rewards of house price gains. What we know about people seeking out debt advice and filing for bankruptcy is that the wheel of fortune rises and falls for us all, and a one-off event can shatter financial stability. One bad turn, like an illness in the family or the loss of a job, can spiral into personal insolvency. Moving down the socioeconomic strata in society often happens when debt is the agent of misfortune. But who is at risk of this downward social mobility? While there are, of course, overlapping class, gender, and racial dynamics, what unites them is the use of debt to access and sustain a middle-class life. Let's bring in Dr. James Wood from Cambridge University. I look at systems of household debt. When we think of inequality and debt, most people think, well, you know, it's because people on the lower end of the income distribution are not earning as much. So therefore, people take on debt in order to be able to consume because of their lack of income. When you actually look at how debt is distributed throughout society, what you actually see is that it's middle-income people who take on the most amount of debt in society. And this is because they're using their higher wages to leverage against taking on ever-increasing amounts of mortgage debt to buy homes. Now, 
This sort of income inequality that we see here about between low-income and middle-income households also plays out in terms of increasing income inequalities because this huge volume of debt that people take on actually provides a revenue stream. So you've got a huge amount of interest payments going from these middle-income households to financial institutions where it's distributed to financial sector workers, managers and shareholders. And this is sort of the research that I've been focusing on, specifically looking at Britain, as to how systems of household debt actually create inequalities under systems of financialization focusing on income inequality. So this is essentially the gaps between how much people earn. And this is also tied into how people earn different forms of income. So there's a huge difference between those who may well work in things like the financial sector, where they're very, very highly compensated. But then there is also sort of people who own huge amounts of financial assets will also generate huge amounts of income from those. And these can be financial assets that we would normally think of things like investment portfolios and so on. But this, again, is very tied up to distributional questions that people with higher levels of financial assets would also have very high levels of income. So this sort of cements other forms of inequality, certainly between households. So you kind of have this idea of there's inequality between those who have high incomes and low incomes, and then you have inequalities between households who have high levels of financial assets and low levels of financial assets. The poor pay more for credit is a long-standing form of financial inequality. Deprivation leads to exploitation by moneylenders. Today, high-cost credit is no longer the sole purview of loan sharks. While the middle class use debt to maintain and sustain their life, the working class use debt to survive. There is not just a class dynamic, there is also a clear racial element to financial inequality. The clearest example was in 2008, when the global financial crisis was blamed on the US subprime mortgage market, which was another word for racialized minorities living in America's inner cities. Initially heralded as the democratizing of finance, which meant providing minority communities in urban centers with one route to home ownership, subprime loans, which were government-backed loans that were offered as a remedy to redlining by banks, which meant basically denying individuals mortgages because they lived in non-white neighborhoods. Quoting Marcia Baradarin's book, The Color of Money, just as exploitative credit arrangements like sharecropping were created because of the demand for worldwide cotton, subprime lending was connected to the worldwide demand for mortgage loans. Global capital markets found yield in the cotton produced by sharecroppers and in the interest paid by subprime borrowers. That the black community was exploited in both situations speaks to their lack of wealth, political power, and their exclusion from the main channels of financial power. What it makes clear is that the relationship between debt and inequality is deeply entangled with the discrimination of historically marginalized groups in society. What the 2008 global financial crisis showed was that residential housing writ large not just U.S. subprime loans, is the most concrete example of why debt is so central to the asset economy. What we saw a lot of is just people getting steered towards the higher priced houses versus them thinking, oh, let's take the time to help them find a house that they can actually afford and can sustain. Homes in black neighborhoods are devalued by 23%. That discrimination is leading to a widening of the wealth gap. When I started, my rent was $900. It is now $1,500. That ain't right. What can you tell me about housing? In every major occidental economy, 
Every single market is going up at an incredible rate. We need £70,000 for a deposit now, um, which is an enormous amount of money. It all means increased inequality in a market already inaccessible to so many. How debt and assets come together and appear in everyday life is most obvious in the transformation of residential housing. From a place where people live into an asset, an asset in which capital gains are expected. Housing has been promoted by governments as part of a vision of an asset democracy, promoting owning a home as a form of welfare. Housing is the main asset for a large segment of society. In recent years, especially since 2008, Residential housing itself has become the major driver of inequality. So with that in mind, let's bring in Dr. James Wood from the University of Cambridge. What's your perspective? For most people, the main financial asset that they have is their home. And this is a major source of inequality in Britain. You certainly have this huge divide between those who own their homes and those who do not. But then there's this, again, another divide within that between those who are heavily debt leveraged to buy a home and those who own their home outright. And then there is sort of this intersects with issues of demographic changes. Elderly people tend to own their homes outright. Younger people are heavily debt leveraged. You can see how this starts to become very messy once you start taking into account different forms of inequality between income and assets and how it essentially intersects across very many aspects of not just British society, but many societies over the world. Now I want to bring back our invited authors from the University of Sydney. Professor Martin Konings, what did you want to say on this? The resurgence importance of inherited wealth so you know that's very much there but at the same time what we argue in the book is that it's very much not feudalism in the sense that these inheritance dynamics are completely embedded in a distinctively capitalist logic that revolves not so much around commodities but around assets and what we're also seeing is that Asset inflation has very significant consequences on family dynamics. So in particular, it's harder and harder for young people to live on their own, to leave the parental home when they want to. And it's often necessary for them to live with their parents for a much longer time, often well into adulthood. And this is a trend that has been clearly visible, especially in places like, like Sydney where people are starting to move out at later and later dates. So I think that is a fairly significant transformation. And the last word is to you, Professor Lisa Atkins. Please, what do you think is most relevant? On the one hand, we think homes are places we, we live. They seem very fixed, you know, in a, a particular locality. They seem incredibly local and we have our own neighbourhoods and so on and so forth. And it's where we create our sense of meaning and belonging and our ontological security. All of this wonderful sociological literature on the home tells us all of these things. But at the same time, we might be in our apartment in London or Singapore, but we're all connected. I mean, that's to me what is so striking from a sociological point of view about the global cities phenomena. We're all connected in that we are all participating in asset appreciation in this profound way. And I don't mean connected in a lame sense of globalisation. I mean connected in terms of 
a particular kind of global political economy. And so we simultaneously feel very localised, but we are at the same time connected into this global financial market. This isn't just an issue of residential home ownership, but also is about the renting market as well. So in Sydney, and I know as, as well in London, that increasingly huge segments of the population are locked out of the rental market as well. So this is one of the points that we really try to make clear. The asset economy isn't just about asset owners. <laughs> it's about all of us, right? We can't choose to opt out. <laughs> We can't choose to opt out by being a renter because usually when we're paying rent, we're paying the mortgage of an investor. That's where our rental payments are going. There's no such thing as the outside <laughs> to the asset economy. It is, in fact, an asset society. And I think that's the thing that the global cities have got in common too, is that it's not just one aspect of the housing stock, it's the housing stock in its totality that's connected up to the asset economy and to asset appreciation. Increasingly, for first-time buyers, being able to purchase a property in major Western cities is often only possible with parental assistance. The division between people who do and do not have access to parental wealth is becoming particularly evident as a fault line in the millennial generations. Interestingly, age is revealing a larger class mechanism at work because young people with access to family wealth to put a down payment on a property gives them a decisive advantage over those without, even if they earn more money. Our dialogue examined the terms on which people access assets and debts, namely how these mechanisms worsen inequality by widening the poles between groups within society. What becomes clear is that whether an asset or a debt, it is the deeper integration of finance into everyday life that shapes the fortunes and misfortunes of society. It all depends on where you're located along these fault lines of inequality. Thank you for joining Discovery this week. If you'd like to hear today's episode again or miss any part of it, go to 105.9 The Region's website where you can stream this or any other of our weekly podcasts. Look forward to having you listen next week as we continue to explore the world of podcasts. Discovery, the radio show for podcasters, exclusive to 105.9 The Region. Expand your audience and extend your reach. Send us your podcast, info at 1059theregion.com.